Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I am Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberties Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I talk about American foreign policy with Leon Wieseltier, editor of Liberties, and Elliot Ackerman, who served eight years in the U.S. Marine Corps, both as an infantry and special ops officer. Elliot is also a writer, and he has an essay in the upcoming issue of Liberties, issue four, about navigating identity politics as a veteran. Thanks, Leon and Elliot, for joining us on the podcast today. We're going to have a broad discussion about foreign policy more generally, but before we zoom out, I want to ask you both what your thoughts are about Biden's decision to pull all troops out of Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, to me, it seems like a decision that is rooted in an emotional need to end the war. And I think that's a loaded term. I mean, what does it necessarily mean to to end a war, particularly in this day and age? But it seems rooted in that type of emotional sentiment, as opposed to being rooted in some type of larger strategic vision for the region and U.S. interests in the region. So I count myself sort of disconcerted as to what the direction is going to be uh, going forward for Afghanistan. Um, I couldn't agree more with my friend. Uh, we have Americans have this strange uh, usage. They talk about wars ending, but what they really think is that wars end when we leave, and what we're leaving behind will be a war, and a war that will be much more ferocious and savage and damaging to very many good people and to our interests and to our place in the world than the situation in Afghanistan right now. I think Elliot's exactly right. There has been a, a surge of, so to speak, of feeling that um, this war has got to end. Uh, it seemed, yes, last night at the State of the Union, unless I'm mistaken, it may have been the only time that both sides of the aisle stood up to applaud. Uh, I mean, when Biden mentioned our withdrawal. And I don't think that this withdrawal has been, is, that, that, it's, that its strategic consequences and its moral consequences uh, have been adequately thought out. Last, uh, at the State of the Union the other night, Biden talked about forever wars. What is a forever war and what is, what is not a forever war? You know, when I was in high school, Celeste, I had this copy of the Iliad that they assigned us all to read. Uh, and I saw this edition. And on the cover uh, was uh, one of Bob Kappa's photographs of the D-Day landings on Omaha Beach. And so it was that photograph, and it just said Iliad on it. And it's always stuck yeah. with me, that that image, because I think very much the the Second World War is our American Iliad. It has formed so much of our conceptions of what war is, what a good war is, and how war should end uh, with this sort of massive redeployment of U.S. troops back home. Now, obviously, I mean, the troops stayed after the Second World War. They stayed all through the Cold War. But it's this idea of sort of a war that has a clear causes belly, 
It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we are victorious fighting for a righteous cause. But the Second World War, if you look at the history of, of U.S. wars, is really an outlier experience. But what's so difficult, and I think harmful to our conceptions of how we make war as a nation, is that we keep trying to pigeonhole our wars into, into that framework. And it's a framework that doesn't fit. It's a framework that certainly doesn't fit in, in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, again, in Biden's comments last night, he said, you know, our, 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 our troops have been overseas for too long. We need to bring them home. As though, like, there's this group of soldiers or Marines who have been sitting in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. I mean, they're not. There's a there's a cycle of people coming in and out of Afghanistan, just like there's a cycle of American service members that go in and out of Korea, that go in and out of Europe. You know, the question really needs to be one of, of a strategic question of, you know, what are U.S. interests in the region? How do we secure our interests there at a at a cost in blood and treasure that makes sense? And I would argue that the at current levels you know, the cost in blood and treasure is pretty reasonable for securing Afghanistan and that the path we're embarking on right now, uh, as opposed to being one where, you know, we need to bring these troops home or we need to stop spending money there. This is going to be the far more expensive path, although in the moment right now, it might feel like the, you know, uh, uh, an emotion, an emotionally uh, comfortable decision to make. Yes, like once again, we're in agreement. I mean, when Biden said in his State of the Union that sons and daughters are now being de- of, of people who were once deployed in Afghanistan are now being deployed in Afghanistan, it wasn't ipso facto clear to me what is so outrageous about that. All that signals to me is that we have had a protracted engagement in Afghanistan. And one of the things we need to consider critically is this conflation of this forever war talk with protracted engagements. We are the United States. We are still a superpower, even if we're a recovering one. There are many places and peoples in the world that look to us for such things. Um, And it cannot be that the United States is incapable of protracted engagements that involve military deployments. Military deployments are anyway not the same thing as war. There is such a thing as force without war. If by war we mean, as Elliot said, uh, either the invasion of Normandy or more probably what is meant is the invasion of Iraq, which casts its very long shadow over the debate on Afghanistan and over the debate about American national security and military policy generally. Uh, So I think that the world has to see that the United States cannot simply be waited out. Uh, It's perfectly clear. You You don't have to be a regional expert to see that the strategy of the Taliban has been to wait us out. And it is a plausible strategy because we have been talking and acting like we can't wait to get the hell out of there for a very long time. Um, And this is both in the short strategic term, a stupid way to talk. But more importantly, we have had other protracted engagements that have involved military deployments in our modern history. 
Uh, we had one in Europe after the Cold War. We still have one in Korea. Uh, and, um, and the strategic and, and moral rationales for those long-term commitments, at least to me, but at one point to many Americans, seem perfectly valid. Well, and Leon, last you know, night. I would add watching the state of the, I'm sorry, no, watching the state of the union last night, what's so mm -hmm. surprising to me is, you know, is that line, you know, receives unanimous applause, but so much of it seems performative in certain ways. I would very mm -hmm. much understand the sentiment of, you know what, we've just got to get out of there. If, you know, we currently had 75,000 or 125,000 right. combat troops in Afghanistan and we're losing you know, 75 to 150 Americans killed each week. I mean, that's just, right. but that's just not the reality. You know, the, the, we're right. not in an excruciating position in Afghanistan. We are in a relatively stable one, you know, and you mentioned, you know, the Iraq war, I think, you know, obviously also the Vietnam war hangs over Afghanistan a little mm -hmm. bit. And there's, you know, LBJ's great line from Vietnam, you know, his famous line, I don't see why American boys should be dying for a job that Vietnamese boys should be doing for themselves. And I think mm -hmm. the thing that's sort of so craven about this is, you know, there is a real war going on in Afghanistan and the Afghans are fighting it at a far greater expense than we are and, right. and managing to hold their country together. Uh, and now we're walking out on them. And I think that's you know, a very important point, Elliot. That's a very important point because people, whereas the Afghan government or their governments have not exactly covered themselves in glory in the years of our deployment there. The fact is that people too often think and speak of the Afghans as if um, they're the recipients of some sort of American military welfare. Mm -hmm. And that Which they're not. not they're not remotely. They're engaged in a in, in, in a very consequential struggle for the future of their country. Uh, and there are good guys in Afghanistan. Um, there are not just corrupt politicians and warlords. Uh, and I don't have to tell you, you were there. Um, you know, I, and when you talk about our, our position in Afghanistan now, one of the things that's worth noting also is that we have, I guess, officially 2,500 troops there. People say that if you add various other operators and so on, maybe it's 3,500 troops it's important to see just how few American troops have been necessary to stay the Taliban's hand and to give space for right. the Afghans to develop their own struggle. This is Wait, not a... Can we just pause for a second and zoom out a little bit so this is comprehensible to uh, people other than the two of you? Can, you can you just give a brief description of what it is that we're doing there? Like, when we say that there's this war in Afghanistan, which is very abstract, and Biden can say things like, we got to bring our boys home, and this forever war, they can use terms like that because people don't really know what it is that we're doing there. Um, so what is at, what is at stake here? Like, what are, what is the role that we're playing now? And what is not going to be, what will we not be doing anymore once we once we bring everybody back? I... Elliot, that's I'll, for I'll you. Take, you yeah, I'll take a look. Yeah, I would listen. I think if we look, if we look at the arc of the war in Afghanistan, right? The the war begins on September 11th. The causes belly are those attacks, and we go in to root out Al Qaeda and the Taliban who have been who have been providing them sanctuary. That happens. It happens with relative success. 
the Taliban regime is toppled. Much of the Al-Qaeda network in Afghanistan is disrupted, although Osama bin Laden is not captured or killed. And really by late 2002, 2003, things are looking pretty good in Afghanistan. The U.S. then has a, I would argue, a very significant strategic misstep by pivoting to Iraq. That war begins and a vacuum begins to emerge in Afghanistan in 2006 and the Taliban reemerge. And I think many people would say, and I believe correctly, like there are kind of two Afghan wars. There's the one that happened right after 9-11, and there's a second Afghan war that begins with the reemergence of the Taliban in 2006. And ever since that moment, mm-hmm. the reason the United States has been in Afghanistan has been somewhat convoluted because, you know, al-Qaeda hasn't been that strong in Afghanistan for a long time. Um, and ostensibly, you know, the, the reason we were fighting in Afghanistan uh, has never really been about the the Taliban directly. So it's been pretty murky there. That being said, if you you know if you're any type of a student of history, you know Afghanistan is geographically extremely important. Uh, that part of the world has been one in which extremism has quickly taken root. Um, and I would argue that you know the U.S. has has interests there. And that abandoning Afghanistan in much the same way we sort of abandoned Iraq in 2011 and just walked out the door would create a vacuum uh, that there is a very, very real chance will come back and force us to recommit even more U.S. troops, even more blood, even more treasure into the region. Uh, And that's exactly what we saw happen, for instance, in Iraq. So, you know, when Leon says the specter of Iraq hangs over this, I think he means both the Iraq invasion, or I would say both the Iraq invasion and and the withdrawal of Iraq, and and the the emergence of the Islamic State in Iraq. So what we're seeing right now, which to me is so psychedelic, is this complete mimicking of what was so obviously a strategic mistake in 2011 by the very same mm-hmm. people who archi- who 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 were the architects of that mistake. So sort of you know, if san- if insanity is doing the same thing twice and thinking you're going to get a different outcome, this is insane. And well, there are the all these relative- myths. I'm sorry, Ali. Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. There are all these myths about these wars. For example, when people talk about Iraq, and when people talk about Afghanistan, they act as if nothing positive was accomplished or in the midst of being accomplished at any point, that it was just a losing bet and a losing battle. And anyone who knows the first thing about what was happening in Iraq during and after the surge knows that there were, in fact, incipient signs of real political and social progress there. Uh, Similarly with, um, you know, uh, People, there are these cliches that are tossed around. So now we're hearing a lot about how Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. And this reminds me a lot of the cliche that used to be tossed around to inhibit the West from doing anything about the genocide in Bosnia. There it used to, they used to talk about Balkan ghosts and that all of this goes back to the great battle of 1389. And this is all uh, nonsense. Um, this is all nonsense. What we need are sober, unmythological assessments of the threats to the United States and to its allies, 
and the long-term interest of the United States in various regions around the world, and what are the means that we have and can use to further those interests, on top of which we need, and this is very important to me, we need to have a reckoning with our abandonment of a great many people in Afghanistan who not only risked their lives to help us in their attempt to liberalize and restart their society, and I don't mean here just translators and so on, I mean the women of Afghanistan, the educators of Afghanistan, the journalists of Afghanistan, the the, 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 the legislators in Afghanistan, there, I mean, there are, there are millions of good people there that we are walking away from. And, you know, what you now find, there's something I noticed last week, which is that there's a certain kind of progressive who feels bad about those people. And so the, the fig leaf for their um, discomfort is to emphatically... Uh, declare that, the, yes, the United States should pull out, but we should bring all of the people who helped us back with us. Now, we know that we're not going to do that. We also know that that involves something like seventeen or 20,000 people just at the level of actual uh, translators and, 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 and colleagues and so on. That's larger, um, outrageously, than the entire number of refugees that the Biden administration is currently prepared to accept. So, I mean, we need to deal candidly and to face the moral consequences of this abandonment and to compare it to the costs. Uh, I'll just say one more thing about this. When Biden announced the withdrawal on September 11th, the New York Times referred to the 2,400 American soldiers' lives lost in Afghanistan as staggering. And I, who am a civilian and have never worn a uniform and have never served in a war uh, and have never served in wars that I support, uh, didn't know how to think about that because on the one hand, 2,400 over 20 years didn't strike me, frankly, as staggering. On the other hand, I didn't want to be cavalier about any American death in uniform. And so I contacted a distinguished soldier and an expert on this question and a friend of mine who is the other person on this podcast just to see if I weren't, if I wasn't crazy in thinking that 2,400 American lives over 20 years in a cause that is just, if one believes that it is just, is not a staggering cost. And Elliot, you 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 confirmed me in my judgment. Well, I think if you, we look historically, it's it's not a staggering cost, um, and uh, and I don't say that to be callous. I just say that because you know we need you know we need to we need to make sure we're not engaging in hyperbole when we're trying to make strategically coherent decisions as a nation. You know, I'll I'll go back, Leon, because we're talking about you know Iraq a little bit. There needs to be some type of strategic thinking that informs these decisions, not simply emotionally based thinking. Right, when we look at right. the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, you know, we pulled every single last U.S. soldier out of there. And, and we said ostensibly that we couldn't get a status of forces agreement 
which for anyone who doesn't know, that's the agreement you have to have with a nation to keep your soldiers in that country, that we couldn't get a status of forces agreement with the Iraqis, uh, who at the time, the president, the prime minister of Iraq was uh, Maliki, which is just, I mean, really hard to believe that U.S. diplomats couldn't. Fit. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe that. Um, one of the reasons I don't believe that is because mm-hmm. when the Islamic State started showing up in Iraq, we immediately got a status of forces agreement with them just a few months, you know, or just about, what, 18 months later. But all that being said, mm-hmm. imagine mm-hmm. an alternate reality when in 2011, we had not pulled out every last U.S. soldier from Iraq. We kept about same, 2,500 there. We'd signed a status of forces agreement, sending very clear signals to all of our adversaries in the region, uh, to individuals like the, you know, the Iranians and even the Russians, that we are not leaving uh, Iraq. I would argue that you would not have seen the Islamic State take up a foothold in Iraq, uh, that you would have seen a much more functional Maliki government, which you know was a Shiite government. So you wouldn't have had the Sunnis who you know were allied with the Islamic State quite as disenfranchised. And we would have had a much smoother path through Iraq and with Syria uh, as well, because you wouldn't have seen the Islamic State as strong in Syria for the relatively cheap price of about 2,000 U.S. troops and a status of forces agreement. But we didn't do that, and we wound up paying a much, much higher price over a much, much longer time scale, not only in American lives, but also in how destabilized the region became shortly after we left in 2011. Well, that's and I would right. just argue I mean, we're, doing, we're doing the same thing, and we're doing the same thing right now. That's right. I mean, you know, Zawahiri and al-Baghdadi – were the consequences not of our presence in Iraq, but of our absence from Iraq, of our withdrawal. And if the yes. deadline and, and, for and, our... And I think... Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead and finish, Leon. I'm sorry. Elliot? Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, go ahead and finish. Um, and I think that if, in fact, all our last soldier will be withdrawn on September 11th, uh, there is no reason not to believe that the slaughter in Afghanistan will begin on September 12th in one form or another. Uh, and, um, you know, we have been, the world has watched us fight recent wars so irresolutely. Uh, you know, the greatest example of this, which was the most, probably the most cynical thing I've seen happen in Washington in my lifetime, disregarding all every day of all four years of Trump's administration, was Obama's surge in Afghanistan. When he announced that we were increasing troops, and he said when we were withdrawing them. I mean, if you were the Taliban, you would have had a feast, and I probably did. Uh, you know, we have, what we have forgotten is how to engage resolutely, um, implacably. Uh, We have forgotten how not to be in some way embarrassed by our force and our power. We have forgotten the important strategic and moral utility of our power. And for so many Americans, and I'm speaking here about the isolationists of the left, the isolationists of the right have a different tradition, For so many Americans, these engagements, these deployments, these wars are simply reincarnations of American imperialism. And, you know, one thing one has to say about imperialists 
is that they knew how to stay in a place for a long time. The British were in India for, what, 200 years? The United States has trouble being in a place for 200 months. And, you know, this was not an imperialist crusade of any kind. This was a, a strategic war in America's defense that, in the case of Afghanistan, didn't have collateral damage, had collateral benefits, collateral humanitarianism, in that the, the, the deposing of the Taliban gave Afghanistan an opportunity to, 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 to found its society in some mm-hmm. new way. Uh, and that is something about which the United States has nothing to be ashamed. Well, I, Leon, I would, I would agree with you. Um, and I, I, I very much agree on Obama's uh, surge speech in 2009. I was in Afghanistan when that speech mm-hmm. was given. And if you don't believe that that speech has a direct on-the-ground impact, I would speak with Afghans in the weeks and months after that speech was given. And you're often you know, trying to get local leaders to support the Afghan government. And they say, you know, we saw Obama's speech. You're going to yeah. be out of here. And at that time, the, the, the withdrawal date was set in 2009 for 2014. Now, you're going to be out of here in a few years. And the Taliban shadow governor who comes by when you leave, he's still going to be here. Explain mm-hmm. to me how it's in my best interest to align with you and the Afghan government. But furthermore, I give you another observation kind of on something that always struck me on how we Americans think of war. And it was both in Iraq, but also very much in Afghanistan, is in Afghanistan, um, particularly at air bases like places like Bagram, you would see the Soviets had used all of these bases and you could see the the old structures they had built, you know, these very, you know, heavy concrete uh, air control towers, barracks, all built by the Soviets while they were there. The entire time I was in Afghanistan, if you went to any of the main bases like Bagram or Kandahar, all of our command centers and all of our building was always built with plywood. Huh. I mean, years would pass and you had these everyone's in these plywood buildings as though, you know, as though we're about to take it all down. But it just it speaks to that psychology it that, that exists there. Does. We're not saying we are about to leave, you know, in the um, in uh a book, there's a book called A Bright Shining Lie. I imagine you're probably familiar with it about Yeah, Vietnam. Neil Sheehan's book. Yeah. Right, Neil Sheehan's book. And it follows uh, John Paul Van, who was a mm-hmm. he was a army officer who wound up working for uh, for what was one of the precursors of USAID and development work in Vietnam. And he sort of famously says in the books, you know, the problem with the Vietnam War wasn't that we fought a seven-year war. It was that we fought seven one-year wars. And that's oh, very much yeah. an epitaph you could write for Iraq and Afghanistan is that there was no at the at the level of the president all the way down. There was never any strategic coherence to what we were doing because there was never an appetite to really stay the course. And I think this is what's so difficult. Um, and I feel this myself in advocating for keeping U.S. troops on advocating for never hinting that there's going to be a withdrawal date is that you're immediately put into this sort of morally defensive position as though you're a horrible warmonger and a hawk for not wanting to immediately in the next breath say, and we're going to leave and don't worry about it. When in fact, the people who say that in the next breath are the ones who ensure that we will be there for a decade longer because we're constantly telegraphing that we're going to leave. So we're constantly reinforcing our our adversaries' capacity and desire to continue to fight. We're making them stronger. Then, in fact, if mm-hmm. you are a dove, 
you show that strength. You say, we're going to be here as long as it takes and we're not leaving. And you convince your adversary of that and you will win far more quickly. Fewer people will die and you will be able to come home or at least draw down your true presence in the interim. And I just want to make one other point because um, we're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, right after the, um, the troop withdrawal was announced, I think it was announced on a Wednesday. That Friday, I went for an early morning morning run with an old friend of mine uh, who I've known, you know, since I was in my early 20s in the Marines. And uh, we were in special operations together, and he still works in special operations at a pretty senior level. And he made the point to me, which I hadn't really thought as much about. So he said, well, you know, this is going to be a fighting withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And um, that yeah. term fighting withdrawal kind of in military circles is a loaded term of all the maneuvers an army can perform in the field, you know, attack, retreat, flank. Um, a fighting withdrawal is widely known as being the most complex and the most difficult to do because you're you're trying to disengage while under pressure. But he made the very obvious points like, listen, in, a, in Iraq, we could just drive across the border into Kuwait, which is what we did. You know, mm-hmm. he said, even with the Soviets, when they withdrew from Afghanistan at the time, they shared a border with Afghanistan. So they just drove out of Afghanistan. He said, you know, we yeah. we are reliant on three airfields in Afghanistan, really. Jalalabad, uh, Kandahar Airfield and Bagram outside of Kabul. And that's sort of it. And if you look at Afghan history, you know, the Afghans have a very proud history of stymieing the efforts of other nations' militaries when they try to withdraw. I mean, you go all the way back to like the first Anglo-Afghan war uh, in 1842, where the British tried to withdraw with a force of 16,500 people. And there was literally one survivor who made that march from Kabul to Jalalabad. Mm -hmm. The Afghans are still very proud of that and will tell you all about Mm -hmm. it. So the idea that we're going to go from this moment where we're having the conversation kind of at the end of April to September... And there's not going to be some type of an incident as U.S. troops are flying out of Afghanistan. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. hope there's not. But mm-hmm. I find so myself asking the question of what happens when the Afghans or the Afghans sponsored by our adversaries, the, the Russians who wish us ill in the region, the Iranians who wish us ill. The Pakistanis. You know, what happens, the Pakistanis. What happens when they take out a C-17 and we lose more U.S. troops in a single afternoon than we've lost in the past five years in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. How does that change the calculus? And do we really believe our adversaries wouldn't love more than anything to embarrass us in that way? Celeste, do I have permission to ask Elliot a question? Please. Okay. Elliot, what is your view based on your analysis, but also on your experience of the actual terrain of the place? What is your view of what one hears now that in fact in order to support the Afghans and keep the Taliban at bay, it will suffice for us to establish some bases in the stands and move in an aircraft carrier, and we can fly uh, bombers all the way from the states over there. What is your view of, of that reassurance that is given that, in fact, this is not a military abandonment of Afghanistan? I think that war is psychological above all, right? You and your enemy are locked in a contest, and it is always a contest of political wills. And what we have, the signal we've sent loud and clear by saying we are pulling out every single U.S. soldier from Afghanistan is that our will has crumbled. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of flying bombers in and out, I mean, you know, that's 
that's tactics. Um, mm-hmm. But the signal we send by leaving, it shows a collapse of American will to do anything meaningful mm-hmm. inside of Afghanistan. And the Taliban mm-hmm. are going to push and push and push as hard as they can. And I think the other thing you have to take into account as well is that now that we've sent this very clear signal within the Afghan government at the higher levels are people with options. I mean, there are many people with, you know, they have they have dual citizenship. They have the ability to leave Afghanistan. And I think I'm talking, you know, the the the, the ministers of the various agencies, senior commanders, and they're going to be looking for the exits. And so mm-hmm. they will be replaced by subordinates who are mm-hmm. far less competent than they are. Um, mm-hmm. So I think all of that is going to happen. Uh, and that is, you know, flying in bombers from the stands does nothing to, to deal with that issue and mm-hmm. just sort of this collapse of confidence that uh, mm-hmm. I can't I just I can't imagine that's not what is going to occur. And it's what we saw happen when the Soviets pulled out uh, in 89 uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, to Najibullah's government. And it's what we saw happen in Vietnam. There is an important point since you mentioned Vietnam that shouldn't be lost in this discussion. And it has to do with the future, but not the future of Central Asia. And it, I think it, it's this, that the era of great power rivalry between the United States and China has begun. It's like the climate crisis. It's not coming. It's here. And the Chinese are on the march. And by on the march, I mean they are determined, not only, as Biden said last night, to become the most powerful country on earth, but their 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 strategy for this preeminence includes military dimensions. And given what we see in China, there is no reason to believe that the Chinese within the next decade are not only going to make moves in the South China Sea, which they've already made, but might even make some sort of move on Taiwan. Uh, which is, of course, one of the most admirable countries on the planet and an ally of the United States. I don't think for a second, and I pray that it never happens, that the United States should go to war with China. That's lunacy, just as it was lunacy to want the United States to have gone to war with the Soviet Union. But it won't do to intone any longer that we don't want a Cold War with China, because there already is a Cold War with China. We don't, we don't have a veto over what our adversaries do. And our allies along China's rim are terrified of the coming decades strategically, and rightly so. And so we have to consider our larger strategic posture, our attitude towards the use of American force, the so-called projection of American power abroad, we have to reconsider and rethink our very dogmatic uh, and I think erroneous attitudes towards American intervention in the light of the decades that are to come, because we cannot simply you know, bring it all home and think, as Obama did, that the Chinese are going to play by the rules of the road. (laughs) The Chinese are not only not going to play by the rules of the road, they are paving the roads. 
Um, and so an event like the withdrawal from Afghanistan has to be seen in that larger historical framework as well. We both talked I about the consensus across the aisle for for um, withdrawal and for sort of isolationism across the board. And you also described the lessons that anyone paying attention would have learned from recent history. Do you think that the Biden administration and the Republicans, I mean, everybody agrees on this. Do you think that they just they're just pretending that they don't know what the consequences will be. I mean, he used pretty tough language at the State of the Union about America's place in the world um, and rivalry with China, but did that ring hollow to you? Um, Look, one has to distinguish between language and action. You know, in the case of the Obama administration, the, 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 the disjunction could not have been more dramatic. Obama wanted to have Brent Scowcroft's foreign policy wrapped up in Elie Wiesel's language. Um, And yes, Biden is, the Biden administration was admirable in tackling the China problem right out of the gate, right out of the gate. And Obama's, uh, sorry, and Biden's language about autocrats and authoritarians and his rhetorical firmness about China is correct and admirable. Uh, but we are going to be faced with certain concrete challenges, and we will see um, what our what our policy will be. We will see. There is no question that right now, uh, and again, I don't read polls, but I believe what everybody says. The United States is in some sort of paroxysm of isolationism. Trump represented that. Obama, in his um, exquisite way represented that. Uh, and we are going to have to deal with that. There is a national mood. Now, when there is a national mood, the response has to be leadership. It is possible for our rulers, for the president, to influence public opinion, but that all depends on what they, what their views are, on what their priorities are. And so we're going to see. We're going to see. Well, and I think there, I, I do read polls, and there was one that came out, I believe it was about three weeks ago, that showed that uh, when asked, 75% of Americans said that if China moved on Taiwan, the United States should not intervene. You know, and that's mm-hmm. a disconcerting poll. I'm sure the Chinese yeah. saw that poll. Um, oh, but yeah. as well, that is that is a poll taken outside the context of a president trying to sway, to sway public opinion. But uh, listen, I think I, I, I think that our withdrawal from Afghanistan certainly feeds a narrative that the United States doesn't have an appetite for this type of military engagement. I also think uh, that you know the divisions we've seen at home, particularly you know since the pandemic, but years before, also show that the United States doesn't seem as though, you know, we can find the type of consensus we need on anything just to, you know, for back of lack of a better words, kind of come together and make a fist if we have to. Mm-hmm. And uh, our, our adversaries are watching that and, and sort of biding their time. And I think trying to, to, you know, to figure out what they want to do next. But I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that the Chinese, the Chinese claim the entire South China Sea, which is half the size of the continental United States. It's the size of mm-hmm. the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean combined. They claim that as territorial waters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a ludicrous claim. Um, but 
they say that is so, you know, as well as as well as Taiwan. And, um, you know, that should be disconcerting for uh, for anyone, not just the, the United States. But again, I think across the board, there's been a real lack of leadership. And I would point to Afghanistan as sort of exhibit A. The strategy mm-hmm. there I, is just seems completely incoherent. And to me, the leadership that it would take to, you know, to craft a coherent strategy in Afghanistan is actually a pretty low bar. Like most people are not really affected by the war in Afghanistan. They don't care. I don't say that because like they're, you know, I believe they're malicious. Like it just doesn't affect their lives. So for the president to come out and say, this is why we're staying the course in Afghanistan. I want, you know, the nation needs to think about Afghanistan in a new, in a new light. Let me, you know, let me explain why we're there. You know, let me explain the relatively low costs of staying there and why it makes strategic sense for this country. You know, I don't think this is an issue that people care about in the way they care about, you know, getting a vaccine or getting their next round of stimulus checks. You know, Elliot, there is one issue on which we have come together and can come together, and that is that the entire country seems to agree that we shouldn't make a fist. In this age of polarization, the opposition to a strong American presence in the world seems to be the one thing we can all agree on. And I don't want people to think when we're talking here about China and Taiwan that we are proposing that we immediately go to war for Taiwan, though God knows our alliance with them is just and right and we should have their backs. Uh, But what we're saying, I think, is that there are many things the United States can do uh, in East Asia but around the world and in its policies generally that will make it less likely that we would ever come to such a crisis. So, yeah, for I example, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, abandonment, the, the, the cancellation of the TPP by the Trump idiots, it was a huge mistake. But the truth is what we need to form in some very muscular way is not an economic alliance in Asia. It's a strategic alliance in Asia with South Korea and Japan and the Philippines and countries in Southeast Asia and Australia. I mean, such a a strategic alliance based upon the rise of China already exists in, in, you know, in OVO. I mean, it already, it de facto exists, but the United States has to step up and lead this alliance as if it were a NATO for East Asia. And nothing I, less. I listen. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, in another age, we called this peace through strength. And when I yeah. say make a fist, I mean this is. An, I I am. Listen. I I am. I am. I am a. I am certainly would characterize myself as a dove. I just feel like the lesson I've learned on this world is that the way you avoid wars is by showing is by showing strength. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you walk if you walk into a, if you walk into a tough bar and you've got your fists up guess what? You don't get punched in the face. If you walk into a tough bar and you're doing jazz hands, you're going to get clocked in the face. Mm-hmm. I hope that hasn't happened to you. <laughs> Not the jazz hands. Good, good. <laughs> it, is, it is strange. I think Elliot's right that most people don't care about Afghanistan. So it's strange that Biden made such a big deal out of this. Well, but let's be clear. Most Americans don't care about foreign policy altogether. Right. But he and frankly, it's not, their, it's not their jobs to care about foreign policy. It's the job of the commander in chief and of the Congress uh, 
to conduct our foreign policy. Right, but if and, if if, if Elliot, I agree with you. I just, but if Elliot is right that this is an emotional argument, and Biden is making this argument because he's trying to satisfy a kind of emotional impulse um, for for Americans, it is strange. I mean, there there are a lot of points that he can score on domestic policy that he is scoring. So why did he feel like he had to do this? Well, um, Biden, Biden will have to, at some point in his administration, he will have to face the contradiction between the spirit of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the spirit of our resolution against China. And he is yeah. going to have to find a way to resolve that contradiction in policy. Right now, we are a little bit incoherent uh, which is a lot better than the complete coherence of the Obama and Trump administrations on these questions. We are a little bit incoherent, which is progress. But uh, Biden is going to have to find a way to resolve this contradiction. They don't go together. Trump the thing that I think is, China. is, I would just say the thing I think is remarkable in in this decision. Um, and I'm remarkable how his advisors let him do this, is that he now, he owns Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I'm certain in his own mind that he believes he will be a two-term president. So whatever happens mm -hmm. in Afghanistan between 2021 and 2028, if he were to earn or get reelected, he owns. And I can assure you that is not going to be a pretty road. It's going to be a, there are going to be a lot of very nasty images that come out of Afghanistan in these, in these next few years. And he's going to own that. And then um, it could really become a distraction from strategically more urgent matters. It, it, it could. And, you know, one thing that struck me, too, in his remarks was that he kind of referenced, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, I'm making these remarks as the father of a son who served, and I'm probably the first president in who, however long who can even say that. And, um, and sort of him, you know, I sort of found it remarkable kind of him claiming that type of uh, authority to be just remarkable because it showed how far our leadership class has drifted from military service, um, that he would be laying such a tentative claim on service himself, where it's, you know, my son, who actually mm -hmm. didn't even serve in Afghanistan, serves in Iraq, kind of gives me the credibility to make this decision of pulling out. And you need to listen to that because I'm a father here. And I just thought that was remarkable when you look back at, you know, the composition of our political leaders before that now uh, the now it, the relationship with the military is just something that, that that that's the most that that tenuous claim is the most credible claim anyone in that chamber could probably come up with. You know, Elliot, one of the things that struck me uh, in the immediate response to Biden's announcement of the withdrawal was how much more complicated uh the response was among in our military than among our governing classes. Uh, you know, it was clear that the Pentagon did not want this withdrawal. Uh, when various papers went and interviewed soldiers, uh, and again, this is anecdotal evidence, and it's anecdotal also because it's based on just the, the reports that I read, but most of the, mil the responses of people in uniform were ambivalent to negative about the idea of this withdrawal. Do you think that's the right impression? 
Yes. I mean, I listen, I think it's the U.S. military is definitely not a monolith. And I think what's so interesting now is that it depends on the age of the person you're talking to. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're talking to someone who's sort of my age, plus or minus five or 10 years, you know, the Afghan experience is very much our experience. If you're talking to a 21-year-old Lance Corporal, I mean, you know, they never served in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, these these wars have kind of uh, uh, you know, these forever wars have really changed the time horizons upon which we fight wars and upon which we remember them. But I think that um, I do think many people in the military have more of an intuitive understanding that the war in Afghanistan in 2021 is not the war in Afghanistan in 2011 or 2006. And that what we're doing right now is, in fact, kind of a very a, a very low cost enterprise where we're actually seeing a decent return on investment. Um, you know, there's this a, kind of a business principle, which is that, you know, you never make, you don't make business decisions based off of, of past costs. You make them based off of the potential for future earnings. I don't say that to sound like a horrible imperialist capitalist. I'm just making the point like, you know, we sunk the cost and we can debate whether or not the cost of Afghanistan has been worth it over 20 years. And I'm, think that's a, a debate definitely worth having. But the fact of the matter is we're sitting here today. The cost going forward is about 25 to 3000 U.S. troops, a status of forces agreement and some financial support for the Afghans. It's a pretty reasonable cost going forward to not see that country turn into a total black hole filled with every adversary, both nation state and non-nation state actor who wishes us harm. I mean, it seems like a pretty low cost to do that. And we're just saying, no, we're not going to pay anymore. It, it Again, I just come back to what is the strategy here? This doesn't seem like a rational decision. This seems just like a emotional decision that is being made with a very short-term political horizon. Like Joe Biden said he ended the war. That's great. We'll remember this for about three to six months. We'll move on to the next thing, and we'll either never think about it again, or we'll think about it in 18 months when Kabul falls to the Taliban and people are being executed in the streets, and we have to answer for it in some way. Hmm. Yes, sir. Right. And, and just to wrap things up and looking forward, it seems like a p- pretty bleak picture. Um, I guess you've just told us basically what you think is going to happen on um, September 12th and like over the next two years. But does that mean that you feel like you have a sure sense of what a, what Biden's foreign policy is going to be like for the duration of his term? Um, do you think that if things get bad enough, he'll pivot? Um, what do you expect to happen over the next four to eight years? I, I think with regards to Afghanistan, he very well might be forced to pivot in the next four to eight years if it gets, you know, if it gets grim enough there and recommit U.S. troops and, and basically be in the same situation that Obama was in in his second term vis-a-vis ISIS. What's just so unfortunate is that at that point, that would really be a self-inflicted wound. So the with regards to Afghanistan, the strategy he has embarked upon is a massive gamble. It's this gamble that we are going to pull out and Afghanistan is going to hold together. Or if it doesn't hold together, the Taliban will come in and they will have learned their lesson and will and will stay within, contained within their own borders and be able to police all of the non-state actors and extremists who might want to come back into Afghanistan. I mean, that is like that's a hell of a gamble. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that we are going to come out on top in that configuration. I mean, when we go outside of Afghanistan and we start talking about China and the U S pivoting away from these 
the, you know, from the wars on terror. I think one thing we don't talk about enough is that one of the costs of the war on terror, this last 20 years fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, and being so fixated on the Middle East, um, has been the opportunity cost has been, you know, we've been caught sleeping with regards to ever having to deal militarily with a peer level competitor. Meaning our military hasn't been thinking about fighting a Russia or fighting a China or what we need to do to make sure that we are, you know, well ahead of that. Uh, and we're making that pivot now, um, but we are definitely behind the eight ball. I mean, currently the United States has about 280 uh, warships. The Chinese have 400. Now, granted, ours are more technologically sophisticated, but if we were to, you know, ever fight not for the long. Chinese, not for long, and if we were to ever fight the Chinese, it would likely be. Uh, in, in and around the South China Sea. So they would have home court advantage. So I think we're having this realization that this American preeminence we've just sort of taken for granted for decades now might not might not be the reality anymore. Well, and I think remember, the, Elliot, you remember about a decade ago, the national security strategy of the Obama Pentagon basically announced that land wars are over and that we can make do essentially with drones and special ops. Right. And, and I think that, that's, you that know, that's been seen as foolish. Yeah. I mean, really short sighted and uh, I mean, delusional. And again, it's worth stressing so that all our brothers and sisters on the left don't immediately take to Twitter to say that you and I are calling for immediate land warfare against Russia and China, that the point of having a powerful military is not only to be avail to avail itself of its military uses, but of its political uses and of its power to deter. This is all about whether or not America will have the power, the credible power, to deter the, its strongest rivals. That's what's at stake here. I, I couldn't agree more. I and if the Taliban had believed that the United States was never going to leave Afghanistan in 2009, I would argue the war there would have been over years ago. Mm -hmm. And if the Chinese believe that if they set one toe on the Taiwan, the entire force of a very sophisticated U.S. military will come down on them, then they will never set one foot on Taiwan and we will have peace. Bravo. Yes. All right. I hope that uh, the next time we have, we have you on here, Elliot, it, it's an occasion for a, a more cheerful conversation. Oh, well, you know, remember, I also, if I also you're do going to movies. San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you. I, Celeste, I don't know if you heard me. I also do movie reviews, so maybe we can do that next time. <laughs> yeah, let's do that next time, certainly. Thank you both. Thank you. It was Thanks, a pleasure. Uh, lots of fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and have not yet subscribed, head over to libertiesjournal.com and sign up. In the very near future, digital subscriptions will be available, certainly by the time Elliot's essay about navigating identity politics as a veteran appears in issue four. <laughs>